Many medical schools began experimenting with alternatives to traditional lecture-based courses years ago. The newest changes involve a so-called flipped classroom approach, where acquisition of information occurs largely outside the classroom, and time in class is reserved for case vignettes, group work, and open-ended questions. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Richard Schwartzstein, a professor of medicine and medical education at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Schwartzstein has co-authored a perspective article about the role of lectures in medical school and alternatives to traditional teaching formats. Dr. Schwartzstein, you write in your article that the movement away from traditional lecture-based courses has actually been underway in the U.S. for more than three decades. So what made educators realize it was time for a change? I think uh, individual faculty realized that the lectures ultimately were becoming very inefficient, and there have been considerable data over time showing that it's not an effective way to actually get long-term learning. So while it may feel like you can, quote, cover, unquote, a great deal of material in a lecture, it's not always so clear that students are learning. And one of my frequent comments to faculty is that we confuse what we teach with what students learn. And so the fact that you can show a PowerPoint with 40 or 50 slides in 45 minutes and say, wow, I covered a lot of material, may not translate into students, in fact, learning things. And as we saw data like this and began to appreciate that from our own experiences, the question was how could we be more effective in the ways that we actually educate our students. Do the recent changes reflect changes in the way medicine is being practiced today? Or do they reflect a response to the newest generation of students and their needs? Where does this come from? I believe it's a combination. We are now at a stage, obviously, with the explosion of biomedical knowledge where one can't teach all of it anyway. And with technology available to us so readily, looking up specific facts, if you don't have them all at your fingertip, is almost trivial and can be done extremely rapidly. And students, particularly in the millennial generation, are often referred to as digital natives. They've grown up with technology and are very facile with it and very used to the instant gratification of finding particular answers or facts-based questions. So they really demand that we make better use of our time with them, less on having them memorize things, more about application of those facts that they have access to. And then how do you test for that deeper understanding? How do you measure the effectiveness of these new methods? It's a great question because the assessments are probably the hardest part in many ways of medical school. I mean, factual assessment, that's easy, right? And we do that very well with multiple choice exams and standardized tests. But really trying to get at whether somebody understands a deeper concept and can apply that is more difficult and, in my view, typically requires more open-ended questions that really get at those fundamental principles that you're after. It requires different kinds of exams. We use case-based exams to do this. And interestingly for us, we actually give the students the cases ahead of time so they can work on them and try to figure out what's going on in the case, not so much with an emphasis just on a diagnosis, but how things are working, what the pathophysiology is and how the anatomy and physiology and biochemistry all work together. But to really get an insight into how the student is thinking, you need to have more open-ended questions. So that's a formal assessment, obviously, with an exam. And then on a day-to-day basis, we do that with the new formats of interacting with students as opposed to having them sit in a lecture hall and just receive passively information. 
You say in your article that the Liaison Committee for Medical Education recently changed its requirements for accreditation to include self-directed learning exercises. So what did they look like, and why did the committee decide that they were important? I'll start with the second part of that question first. I think it's a little bit easier. I think we believe that's important because we all know that over the course of a career that could span anywhere from 40 to 60 years, perhaps, your medicine will change and you're going to have to learn a lot of new things. And even in the context of what we know now, there may be nuances of things that you're going to have to investigate and learn on your own. So this skill of self-directed learning is a key for lifelong learning, which is particularly critical for medicine, but probably true of most professions in many ways. So I think that's why the LCME is requiring this in a much more explicit way. How you design exercises that get students to do that and learn how to do that and be able to work with them on that process, I think, takes many forms. Sometimes it's just giving them open-ended questions that don't have a very easy, simple answer and asking them to work on it and look at the resources that they're using to get to those answers. We did an exercise in our first year course that I teach at the medical school, and this year we said, come up with a question that we haven't addressed in the course that you've been stimulated to think about because of things we have been talking about. And the students came with questions, some of which were better than others, and we worked with them on that and then said, all right, now you need to go and seek out resources that will help you answer that question. And it couldn't be some factual question. It had to be a more thoughtful question. And then they came back and had written up a brief summary of it. Specifically, we also asked them to list the resources that they used and quiz them a little bit in a sort of modified little oral exam to see that they really had understood what they were seeking out and how they utilized the different resources that they employed to get the answer. So how many medical schools in the United States have adopted a flipped classroom approach or one of these other non-traditional teaching formats? I'm not aware of any specific study or survey that's looked at that explicitly, but just my sense traveling around the country is that there are probably at least 20 or 30 schools now that probably are moving in this direction in various stages, and I suspect there'll be many more over the next five to 10 years. What kinds of resources do medical schools need to make these changes? Does the flipped classroom require smaller classes, additional training for faculty members? What kind of investments needed? The first part is you need to change the physical structure of your learning spaces. So if you've been used to having just a few large amphitheaters and more traditional lecture-based teaching, that doesn't really work well for what we're talking about here. The schools that have gone in this direction have generally developed classrooms that are flat surface, if you will, with either tables or collections of desks of some kind so that students are grouped uh, between probably four to six students at a table to do that kind of work. We tend to use groups of four students at Harvard. So there's that infrastructure you need. And then there's the issue of how do you transmit the factual information, which is now done by the students at home. And so you have to develop resources for them to do that. Some of them can be traditional textbook or journal readings, but we find that the students prefer and often need to have things distilled for them in a different way. And we use a lot of videos for that the sort of Khan Academy-style videos that are becoming more prevalent for people. So the faculty need the wherewithal to make those videos, a bit more of an infrastructure support. They also need a lot of faculty development in order to do that. And then they need help in designing the kinds of learning sessions and using mini-cases or other kinds of situations that provide for open-ended discussion and then work on how you actually choreograph that kind of a session 
emphasizing a lot of participation by many students across the room. So you're not always just about getting the answer, you're about getting them to think about the answer, how they got there, and how they can interact with each other in order to learn together. And that's all part of the choreography of one of these learning sessions. In fact, the development, I think, is an underappreciated aspect of this. I think that's probably true for almost any new curricular innovation. So that's probably the area that we've been trying to focus the most on, how to really help faculty learn how to do this. So if students study a case, learn something from it, how do they then apply that to the next case they see? It's a great question that gets at this issue of transfer, that we all learn things in a particular context that frames the way we think about it. And then we see a new problem that may, at its core, be very similar to the prior one, but we don't recognize the context and we're stuck. We're not able to transfer our learning from one situation or scenario to another. And I believe that's one of the most difficult aspects of education at any level, K-12, college, professional school. And so this new format of trying to work with students on how do you approach problems, how do you actually think and reason critically, what are the essential elements that you need to bring to bear to solve that problem, is really an important part of this new approach in education. Just having the factual information is not sufficient if you don't recognize the core principles in one case are similar to this new case with which you're now confronted. Thank you, Dr. Schwartzstein.